Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In terms of an investment in your company, bringing laughter and a sense of levity to your corporate culture, there is no better time to put your energy in this area than right now because people are feeling isolated, anxious, they're struggling with, you know, depression and laughter, as Victor Borca said, it's the shortest distance between two people. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, healthcare, entertainment, and sport, who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humour with you. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast has had an illustrious career as a comedian, actor and author and is the founder of the amazing organisation Laughter On Call. Her company connects comedians and patients with Alzheimer's to create cheer and connection to community. She provides top-notch comedy and improv training to healthcare workers and families so that they can bring laughter and lightness to those labouring with illness. Additionally, she provides programming for businesses looking to lead with lightness and bringing connection through shared laughter to corporate teams around the world. Her work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post and both the New York and London Times. As an innovator in the field of comedy, psychology and healthcare, she is surely reaching her goal of making connection one laugh at a time. Danny Klein-Modisette, welcome to the Humorology Podcast. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much. I love when I'm lorded. So I appreciate that you said that I'm lorded. I like that. I'm an American. So that's a big deal. Thank you. Well, well, it's all true. And it's all from the heart, Danny. Uh, I know that you started the whole laughter on call business with hiring a fellow comedian to work with your mother who had Alzheimer's and depression. Uh, can you tell me more about the genesis of the idea and, and, and how it worked for your mum. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's actually kind of a quirky story, quirky American story, if I may say. I, uh, I had moved my mother to Los Angeles from New York City, where she was born and raised. She was a total New Yorker. 
But it got to the point she had, as you said, she had Alzheimer's and she was depressed. She wasn't even leaving her apartment. And it was $17,000 a month to keep her like not leaving her apartment. So, and I have children, young children. And so it was decided, my sister and I decided that we would move her to Los Angeles to be near where I live and the kids could visit and whatnot. And when she got here, I found this like really lovely place with a chandelier. It looked very Upper East Side. And I think initially she was like, oh, this is okay. And then realized she wasn't leaving and she became depressed and withdrawn. And I felt terrible. I felt really, really guilty. And I was at my dentist. And of course, because I live in LA, she's also like a life coach. (laughs) And I was like crying and she wasn't drilling. So she was like, what's going on? And I said, I just feel terrible. I feel so bad for my mother. She's depressed. And I go, I just wish I could hire a comedian to cheer her up. And she was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Why don't you do that? And the reason I had the idea was because I was a comedian and I couldn't make her laugh because when she looked at me, she saw a daughter and history and all that. So I wanted like someone fresh to come in and their sole purpose was to make her laugh. So I said, oh, I guess maybe I could do that. I don't know. I thought you were supposed to go through an agency or something, but I put it up on Facebook that I'm looking for a comedian interested in gerontology paid gig because I wanted somebody to respond. And my phone rang almost immediately. And honestly, it was Amy Stiller of the Stiller and Mira family, um, you know, very long term comedians in New York. And so her daughter, very close friend of mine, and she was like, I just saw your post and I know someone in L.A. who wants to work with seniors. She's like sitting on park benches. You should call her. So I called this woman and she came over, I made an appointment. She came over and she did what we do now in the training And uh, she understood instinctively that you get at eye level and she was completely honest with my mother, didn't talk down to her. And of course it helped that she had a New York accent. So she sat down and she was like, yeah, I know. You don't want to talk to me. No, you're probably thinking, who is this schmuck just talking to me? And there was something about the word schmuck that just like my mother heard the word schmuck and she went schmuck. And then the comedian, of course, went schmuck back and it was like this like schmuck off and they were laughing. And I just thought, oh, there it is. That's that's what I want right there. So I hired her on the spot to come eight hours a week to sit with my mother and to make her laugh, basically. And within a very short time, it changed my mother's life like she opened up. And even when the comedian wasn't with her, she was engaged now with the, with the community and she was eating again. And just, it really changed her spirit. So I wrote an article about the experience for AARP magazine, and I got hundreds of responses from around the world saying, please, can you bring a comedian to London? Actually, it's one of the places in Pittsburgh and Florida and Texas. And so that's when I said, oh, wait, I, I should really do this as a business because there's always comedians that need money, you know, to just to, to tide themselves over. And there's an endless supply of depressed seniors who could really use that kind of interaction. And it was so effective. So that's how the whole company started. Wow, that's an amazing story. And I love the idea of a schmuck off, to be honest with you. Uh, the producer's going to have to beep that, obviously. <laughs> no, but... It's a great story, but does it take a comedian to find the moment that helps people to laugh at themselves or can anybody do this? 
Oh, that's such a great question because ultimately I started getting requests from the people running these facilities and from families like, hey, can we learn how to do this? So there are any tools that you can teach. And I had taught stand up for 10 years at UCLA and I wrote a couple books about uh, the importance of laughter and getting basically taking comedy out of the clubs and into your relationships. So I definitely had a whole training and started training people. So yes, the answer is it's, it's great if it's a comedian because their instincts are to keep going and to, you know, when you're a comedian and like there's one person not laughing, like that's the person that you are committed. You go, oh, I'm going to get that person. Well, that's a lot of, can be a lot of what it's like to work with people in cognitive decline, like that challenge. So they have the skills to keep going and the perseverance and the joy of the thrill of it. Um, and they're very easily monologuing, you know, whereas regular people are not, not quite as gifted or don't necessarily have the freedom to let themselves just keep talking because a lot of times it can be a one-sided conversation, even though you need to be checking in with the person and reading them, but it's a lot of uh, kind of being able to keep going. And so that's why I think comedians are really well suited to it, but absolutely, um, I have a whole training that I do with families and caregivers. Well, you talked about the, your background of 10 years at training people at UCLA. What kind of tips can you give people to help find the funny, especially in those kind of situations when they're dealing with maybe dementia or, or, or very serious um, things within the family? Yeah, well, I think uh, authenticity is kind of number one. Like having, first of all, showing up for it at all, you're ahead of the game because a lot of people do not even want to be around that kind of illness, particularly like my father, may he rest in peace, died of cancer 25 years ago. And people were there until the day before he died. They were like reading to him from the New York Post and, you know, very compassionate. And when my mother got diagnosed with Alzheimer's, pretty much within six months, she was down to like one friend who would visit because people are so uncomfortable with mental cognitive decline. They don't want to be around it. And also they're afraid they're not going to do it right. It's very, it's frightening for people. So they don't come at all rather than risk not having a perfect experience and not doing it right. So that's number one, if you're willing to show up and have the courage to show up with some kind of joyful spirit, because the other thing that we know about people in cognitive decline, <coughs> excuse me, is that they become emotionally much more sensitive. So they will mirror back the energy that they're getting. So, you know, beyond being funny and like, nah, 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 like you don't, if you show up with a joyful spirit, you're already doing, you're already being of service to these people. So that's number one. I mean, it was interesting because when I, you know, I know that I called the company Laughter on Call and absolutely initially my impulse was about laughter. But what it came to grow into is this idea of cognitive engagement, you know, but like cognitive engagement on call is like not funny. Nobody wants that. So I, you know, I maintain that the goal is shared laughter for sure. But really, if you're engaging with the person and taking them in and not talking down to them, not pretending it's not happening, not doing this. Oh, she doesn't look good today. 
no, she's not uh, dressed properly or whatever people do. They talk about the person in front of the person instead of honoring them and honoring exactly where they are. So I think, and that's the beauty of stand-up, right? It's like, it's the truth teller. And so if you're able to be the truth teller, you're giving them such a gift. Now, of course, there's parameters around that, right? We don't want brutal honesty. Like we believe in honesty, just not brutal honesty. Like I know it sucks here, mom, and you're never getting out. No, you would never say that to a person. Now, nobody would probably, I'm only, although I have heard people say really, really bad things to their parent um, because of past anger and everything else, which is why hiring an outside comedian, someone fresh is such a good idea. And that's not a pitch for my business. I'm just saying like, you have a, when you have a history with the person and they're in mental decline, it can be very, very challenging. So, uh, so I have heard people be inappropriate. And so you do have to take, if it's your family member, you do have to kind of do a personal check and, and leave that history at the door because there's no place for it anymore. They, they won't know. It's not relevant. So I think that's, that's really interesting, that whole thing. And I, I love the fact that you're talking about showing up because very often people don't show up. I, a, a, a friend of mine's mother died this week and people don't call. And I've learned over the years that you can't just send a text or a, a message and everything. Pick the phone up however awkward it is, because that person needs to talk. And and if they don't need to talk, what you do is you say, look, if you don't want to talk, uh, I, I, you know, you just put the phone down there, I completely understand. But the ability to show up. And the other thing you say was to have a joyful spirit. Now, in psychology, we say, and you know this well, that if you want anyone to go into any state, you have to go into that state first. So showing up with a joyful spirit, of course, can change the other person as well, because it's a symbiotic relationship. Absolutely. It's mirroring. I mean, what they call in uh, the cognitive world is mirroring. But, you know, something that people ask me a lot is like, well, how do you find your comedians? And how do you find these people who can do this? And it turns out there is a whole parallel universe of comedians who either had an aging parent or worked in a senior community or just have this like love of seniors. But what's most important, I don't care about your resume. I don't, you know, it's, do you have a joyful spirit? Can you show up and, and, and change the energy in the room? That's really the job. Can you come in and take, given everything we know, we know it's sad. Like, this is another thing that I say when people say, well, how did you think of laughter and Alzheimer's laughter and all like that doesn't know. And the, the point is that we know it's sad. It's a given, it's sad. It's a very long, sad journey but it's not sad every moment. And that's the thing that we're trying to capture and grab like a comet, you know, those moments that are not sad and to be available to them and to exploit them and, and try to build on those moments is really the task. And why, you know, I found a professional is really great at that again, because they're not coming in with any history to the moment. So, so, remarkable stories. What do you think the, the biggest difference that makes a difference is? Is it because you touched on it earlier on about listening and, and being connected? Is I, I always talk about this because I actually think that 
comedians and obviously having grown up working at the comedy store and uh, all over, I've seen hundreds and hundreds. The really good ones are actually listening because they're sensing what the crowd is giving them and they're working off that energy and it, it's a to and fro uh, of that. So how important is the listening aspect of what you're oh, talking about? Oh, it's so key. And, and yeah, I mean, in the book that I wrote, I, I wrote a book about marriage and laughter called Take My I, Spouse, Please, right? It's a great book and it, it actually... But, but do you think that, that light, laughter is the lifeblood of any relationship, whether that's with a parent or, or with a spouse. I do, I absolutely do. But I wanna just answer your question about listening because the reason I brought the book up is because chapter two is listen. So in, in a marriage, right? It's like, and, and I always say, as you learn that as a comedian, that really, as you just said, the best ones, if you're in a scene and the audience is your scene partner. So if you're not working off what you're getting, then everyone feels that the moment is not truthful and they get distracted. So for example, I'm doing my bits and I, you know, I'm going to do whatever bits I do. Okay. I, I, I can never make a decision. That was a big part of my comedy persona. And I have my bits and my set list. And then the waitress comes forward and drops a tray of drinks at the foot of the stage. But I'm so committed to my material that I'm not going to, no, no, no. But meanwhile, the whole audience is seeing that, like the energy has changed. There's something's gone on in the moment. So if you're not in that moment, you've missed an opportunity. And I think it's the, that is translatable to all relationships. If you're unable to be present to the moment to really take the person in. And of course, as we know, listening isn't just with your ears. It's active listening is body language, tone of voice, words. Yes, of course. But it's the whole enchilada, shall we say. And, uh, and so that comes right out of stand-up, to be able to listen in that way, to take in the whole. I know I, I feel so California when I say energy, but the energy you know, in the room, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or a, a large audience, it's, it's absolutely essential. I couldn't agree more. And I, th I think your work is remarkable. And, and uh, we'll come back to more of that because I want to know more of that as we go along. But but tell me, what makes you laugh, Danny? Oh, my God. Um, the unexpected people who are willing to say what's really going on in a set of circumstances that maybe someone might want to be polite, but instead they say the truth, authenticity, they say the truth of what they're feeling. That totally makes me laugh. I, I'm always a sucker for that. Something that doesn't feel um, premeditated, you know, the, spo the spontaneous truthful moment. I I'm just, I'll always laugh at that, you know? Well, okay. So in a spontaneous truthful way, tell me a true funny story about something that's happened to you. All right. So this is going to be a little dark. This old Joe Orton-esque, but I thought, why not, right? So my mother died like a year and a half ago. And um, we were all like, it was a long journey, as we know. And so we're all at the, around the bed. And like, this is the moment, you know, the labored breathing and all that. I know, stay with me. I know it doesn't sound like a funny setup. And so she's, you know, and you have to know that my mother was very opinionated and very high energy and, you know, always right about everything and very fabulous. She was like a fabulous New York woman. So, you know, the breathing, there's like pauses between the breathing. And then there's like, a big pause 
So I turned to the hospice and my family and I'm like, well, I think, I think maybe that's, I think maybe it's a wrap, you know? And then you hear (gasps) like one more. She's like, one more, I'm not done yet. And, (laughs) and I couldn't, it was like funny because it was so, the timing of it was so perfect. Cause I had just said, I think that's a wrap. And then you just heard, <gasps> not yet. And um, I do, I do like that, that kind of dark humor. I thought, I thought that was really, really funny. And I, you know, I miss her and it's been a, you know the only good thing is that she died before COVID, you know what I mean? So we got to have a funeral and, and, and I'm super grateful for that. We were able to fly but she was a big presence in my life. So, you know, that's what I like the juxtaposition of what's appropriate and not <clears throat> judging something as being appropriate or not appropriate. And just, if it, if it tickles you, like it's okay. Obviously there's parameters again around that, but I don't like making fun of children. I don't like stuff where anybody's in danger, like children where there's a real threat. I don't like that. I don't think that's funny. Isn't it a thing because that's a wonderful story and actually I I find that like really moving that you were able to laugh at the situation in 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 its whole context. But isn't the thing about comedy that you don't know you've crossed the line until you go over it, and so therefore. It's about playing with that line all the time. And I I mean, I think that's beautiful because, I mean, when my father died, God rest his soul, we went back to Hungary where he was from. And um, I walked into a room of all my relatives who were there and uh, you could cut the tension with a knife and everybody was sad. And he died um, a few months before his 90th birthday and we were all going to have a party. And, uh, and, and, I, and I literally went, oh, typical miserable bastard, ruining our party. And there was that gasp, audible gasp, when everybody went, no, you know, that too soon moment. Yes, yes, yes. And then it just broke. And everybody was laughing and they knew it was from the right place. Right, right. But but isn't that the job of the comedian sometimes to, to break that spell so people can have relief on, totally. on that level? Yes, yes, yes. It is like the court jester. I don't think that's really changed. You know, I spent uh, half a year in London uh, in college researching the uh our origin of the national theater and why we didn't have a comparable institution in the United States at the time. We still don't. And, you know, when I realized it, well, it comes from the monarchy. Like that was like part of the monarchy was the court jester. Like there's an appreciation for that, I feel. Um, But it's interesting about pushing the envelope and, and what you said about, you know, sometimes you have to go too far before you know you've gone too far. And doing all this corporate work this year, because we've done like over 200 corporate events and there's certain rules. I don't come from that culture. There's a lot of rules in the corporate world, you know, about status and respect and all that. (laughs) Um, But the funniest one for me, because everybody's trying to do virtual, you know, because we're all stuck still. Many people are still stuck. So that's why they're bringing us in to virtually like, how can we create connection and make people laugh? 
And so we'll be in sales meetings and like, I have a thing about escape rooms. So corporations are doing escape rooms as like, I don't know what. So I do like five minutes every time someone brings it up. I'm like, oh, because we don't feel trapped enough during COVID. We need to, you know, put some trapping icing on our feelings of being trapped. Like that's a great idea. And I will do this. And my assistant's on the call with me. And then the person from HR will be like, yeah, we did it last week. And it, you know, I, I thought it went well. Um, I don't know. And then I'm like, oh my God, like I just totally alienated this poor woman who probably spent $10,000 on an escape room during a pandemic. I, I don't get it, but sometimes my opinions get ahead of me. Like, I think something is so funny. Like to me, that is the height of funny, like trapping people when we're trapped. Like, I don't know how you don't see that, but no. I, I was so, oh, it was bad. That's when I no, I, I completely agree. It, it's uh, and because I do a lot of corporate work myself and everything. I think sometimes that's our job is to come in and say the unsayable. And and you make a great point that it is essentially the court jester. You come in from the outside and you go, you can look at it with a, a different light. And 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 people can go. Do you know what they said? That was probably true, wasn't it, about our company? It's easier to say through humor. Yes, yes. And there's um, there's a book that just came out. Uh, these two Stanford professors wrote a book called Humor Seriously. And on the cover, I have it here somewhere, it says, you know, where humor is your best weapon or your, your weapon. They have the word weapon. And, you know, we make such a distinction because of laughter on call, because of where we come from, that we're from the healthcare space and we don't want to use humor as a weapon. Like we want to use it as a way to build connections and to make people feel included. And I mean, loved is maybe too strong a word for the business world, but that feeling of, of belonging and, and uh, mitigating isolation, like not feeling so alone as we continue to face this situation like how can we use it to build relationships and build trust um so that's something also that colors you know i've been saying now i don't know if you're familiar with this here but uh that you know laughed on calls basically the ted lasso of of comedy you're gonna have to explain that to our audience okay so ted lasso is this show on netflix with jason sudeikis from saturday night live and it's super corny, funny. It's about this like corny, funny guy who is hired uh, to coach a soccer team, football for you guys. And um, and it's it's actually like a revenge thing from this wife. She hires the least talented qualified person for the job, basically, who's like the happiest, most loving, most not competitive guy played by Jason Sudeikis. And he's corny and sweet and he brings her cookies. It's like the antithesis of what you, you know, competitive sports. And it's incredibly charming. You, he wins you over. And as opposed to the New York Times did a piece recently, as opposed to the comedy of, say, Ricky Gervais. I know you know who that is. Of course. <laughs> right. So Ricky Gervais is edgy and kind of can, can be kind of mean. Uh, that's, his, that's his game. So they were doing a comparison of like how in current circumstances, audiences need more of the Ted Lasso, the warm and fuzzy, because it's, we're just all so vulnerable right now. 
So that kind of mean-spirited comedy, people are not gravitating towards. I, I, I completely agree that, that we need, but we do need a combination of both, don't we, really? Because, uh, it, you know, Ricky Gervais is still selling out arenas all over the world. So uh, you probably, um, he would disagree, but he would argue, uh, I know that everything should be funny, which you are in agreement for, because the story you just told about your mother and I told about my father is it's where it comes from. And if it comes from the right place, it can be funny. Absolutely. And, you know, I think what you're talking about is like nothing is sacred, right? To a comedian, yeah. nothing is sacred. Like, let's just go do it. Let's let's call it out. Let's shed light on it with humor so that we can then have a real conversation about it. I definitely I mean, that's the Hannah Gadsby, what she's doing, like all of that bringing, you know, because if you get people laughing about something, they will talk about it as opposed to pretending it's not happening or it's not there. So I'm a totally big proponent and I'm glad Ricky Gervais is still selling out. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Does the truth... Um make go sort of go down easier when a joke is attached to it do you think that that's fundamentally what it is absolutely i mean i wrote a show and toured for a year in a show called too thin t-w-o thin and it was a comedy show about eating disorders about anorexia and bulimia because like what's funnier than that but we told funny monologues. It was two comedians. We, we went to every college in the United States. It's a big deal here. Maybe not as. No, it's huge here as well. Yeah. So the fact that we were honest and had a sense of humor about our personal experience, again, it opened the door. It's, it's saying like, yeah, this is the truth and, and it's okay to talk about it. So I absolutely believe, I mean, even, you know, when my father died, I was, doing another show called The Move, which was about 
giving up my apartment in New York to get married and 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 the whole really the story was about grief that was a play about grief but I couldn't go oh here's a play about grief everyone no I opened I was like eating and had puppets and it was like crazy funny single woman who didn't want to get married basically who was afraid to get married but then three quarters of the way into the show when you're already laughing and you're with me then we see my father's sweaters that I won't throw out and that I won't get out the door. I will not leave the apartment. So it was all really a setup for a conversation about how we grieve. But that, but just to open it with how we grieve, I'm just bored and I'm like, but if I can make you laugh first, then you're going to engage. Well, that's it. It's uh, you've you've created the state change at that point, so people uh, feel free to step in. And when there's that lightness attached to it, which is what the whole humorology project is about, is um, not everybody thinks, oh, it's it's about gags and jokes. It's not really. It's about lightness. It's about connection. It's how you make the connection to the important things in life using a lightness of humor, uh, you know, and humanizing people because of it. Absolutely, absolutely. So is everyone potentially funny or is it a gift given to the few? Um, yeah, I have to think. I, I think everyone, not everybody is funny because I think comedy is music, right? So not everybody can hear the rhythms of, of comedy and timing. And that's very tough to teach if you can't hear it. But I do think everyone has the potential to make someone laugh. And that comes from saying the unexpected, saying something courageous. Again, I think like the probably the most effective tool is saying something unexpected that's truthful. I think anyone has the, some being authentic. Anyone has the potential to do that if they have the courage. That's the thing. It's, it's, it's a courageous act to say, to reveal some personal truth about yourself with perspective, right? Because the great thing that, that laughter does and humor does, I think, is it lends perspective. It says, we can laugh about this because it's not hopeless. It's not always gonna be like this. Like this is the moment where we can laugh because there's hope. And uh, so I, I think that's my answer. I think not everybody is a gifted comedian or a, a mimic or has great uh, control of their instrument as a, as a comic performer. But I think people all have the capability to make other people laugh. No, I completely agree because I consider my job and I think probably your job is is to find the moments that that help people laugh at themselves. And by doing that, and as you said, the perception of the problem is is lightened. And and I I think that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now... There, you know, and I mean, this is something that I, I'm sure you've talked about in the past, like somebody's ability to have a sense of humor about themselves. I mean, that's really key. If someone doesn't have a sense of humor about themselves, that is a really restricting and restrictive dynamic because it often says this better be perfect. You know, it's got the perfect vibe to it. And if you can't laugh at yourself, it means you don't have enough self-awareness to maybe make a change. Like you're just closed, basically. No, I think that's 100 uh, percent true. But and I think that actually uh, it's 
one of the traits that I would say sociopaths have is that inability to laugh at themselves uh, and have a an ego that just won't allow that. And that's where the fragility comes in. And I think in order to grow, you have to be able to, to go, yes, I am ridiculous. I have this ridiculous side. I know that is. And sometimes that's a hard place to get to, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, often it is, uh, you know, the, the laughter comes out of pain, you know, of facing a, a, a frailty. But again, when you face the frailty and you are able to get to laughter, it's because you know it's not the end of the story. You know that you, okay, I have this awareness now and we can laugh because like, I'm not always gonna be this way. Like there's hope. And I think, you know, that's when, when things are hopeless, when you can't, and again, I think that gets back to the very beginning of laughter on call with my mother where it was feeling hopeless she was feeling hopeless like she so to hear her laugh at that in that first moment it was like oh yes there's hope here she's there's more life left in her you know so it's such a gift to be able to lend perspective to someone by making light of a situation it, it's not to say it's not dismissing what they're feeling and like yeah whatever it's saying, hey, I see you. That is awful. And you know what? Uh, it's not always going to look like this. Like, let's, you know, could be worse, which I guess there's a, some controversy about that kind of sympathy now. It could be worse is, is being touted as dismissive or minimizing um, and not, not good listening. But Well, yeah, I know you used the word. I think the first thing that if you have enough connection, if you have enough rapport with the person, and this is this is true for everybody in business. This is, you know, in healthcare. I used to train doctors at uh, the biggest teaching hospital in Europe. Listening, if you have managed to get rapport with somebody, then you have permission to say things. And it's a it's about understanding and and understanding how connection works. First of all, in order to be funny, you have to have been given permission by the group or by uh, the person to do it. And, and that permission comes from a connection. Are we connected now? Uh, we, you, can, you can see that I'm joking. I'm teasing. And, and here's a, um, a word that I was discussing with Dr. Richard Bandler, who developed the whole field of uh, NLP. And we talk about chiding, that chiding is a lovely word. And I'm, 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 I'm trying to bring it back as a word, because when you're teasing, chiding, playing, people love it. Think about the best times you've ever had with your friends. They're not when they're, they're telling you how great you are and how brilliant you were in that last movie you did. That's nice while it is, but actually your real friends are constantly chiding and playing with you, aren't they? And that's the beauty of life is to do that. And so I think if you can do that in, in a situation, uh, whether it's in business or whether it's with a, a patient or a, a relative, that's a beautiful thing to be able to do, don't you think? Yeah, and I think one of the best tools for that is something that I refer to as knowing your audience, you know, and doing your homework to earn that trust. 
So when I started out as a comic, I was flown to uh, Guam to do a, some, I was an op opening for a comedian. And, you know, I got there and it was like one of these really macho dudes that I was opening for. And we got there and I got the local newspaper and I was on the beach. He was like tanning himself and I was on the beach reading the paper and uh, highlighting and making, you know, and writing jokes about their community. And so when I got out there, there it was like some drug scandal with a big political, like a, a leader. And so I made, I was like, oh, you must be relieved to be here and not in blah, 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 the guy who runs your country. And so it immediately earned their trust. They were like, oh, look, she cares. She actually did her homework. And then once you do that, yes, then you've earned your, and again, it was like that comedian saying to my mother, I know you don't want to talk to me. Like, like I'm earning your, I'm reading you. I'm feeling you and I'm reading you. And I do think that is one of, I think that's chapter three in the book. Know your audience. You know what I mean? Like, no, take the time to really invest in who you're talking to so that you can, you know, you're not going to say anything that's too hurtful. You know, no, you got to know what topics are they're really sensitive about. And I think this is as true in businesses and in sales. I know that you work with sales teams around the world and I, I, I do a lot with sales teams, obviously with my background in the, the pitching and the, the books of, of the pitching Bible. But that I always say to people, people buy from people they like and they trust. And you just mentioned the word trust. And I, I'm like, well, of course, that's, you know, that if you're going to actually move a relationship along or, or take somebody to a better place, they have to trust you first before they go there. Right. And, it, and if you know enough about them, hopefully to handle with care what they're sensitive about then they're that much more willing to feel safe with you. And that's another thing, you know, this is very big right now, obviously in business is this idea of creating a psychologically safe, inclusive environment. So that is done by reading the room, by knowing who you're talking to and where their vulnerabilities are. So using humor, again, to connect rather than be sarcastic and off-putting and mean-spirited. So yeah, as a tool for creating rapport. I think you used that word earlier. So if I asked you to write a business case for humor, what would you include in it? In terms of an investment in your company, bringing laughter and a sense of levity to your corporate culture, there is no better time to put your energy in this area than right now, because people are feeling isolated, anxious, they're struggling with, you know, depression and laughter, as Victor Borja said, it's the shortest distance between two people. So if you want people to feel shared laughter, if you want people to feel connected to each other, this is the time, either bring in an outside source or, you know, have some courage to introduce levity yourself as a leader. But now is definitely the time. I, I couldn't agree more and everything. Uh, but here's the here's the issue that it's all down to the accountants. Now, they have to see a return on investment. What is the return on investment when they get laughter on call or humorology people in? What is the return on investment? What changes for the better and the bottom line? 
Well, I've definitely read a lot of statistics now. If you're talking about the mental wellness space, which is a booming industry, and particularly virtually, but all of it, mental health and mental wellness, billions are being spent now because they do have evidence that it's, I don't know the exact figure, but it's like for every dollar spent, it's a savings of $2.71 because people are healthier. So they're using their health benefits less and they're not leaving their jobs because they feel welcome and connected. And the cost of replacing an employee is something like $80,000 a year, depending on the level. But uh, so it is an absolute savings. And I think more and more people are aware of this. And I definitely will give credit to that Humor Seriously book. There's a lot of statistics in there about the importance and value studies on the value of employee retention and health benefits of introducing laughter and bringing companies like Humorology, like Laughter on Call in to help give people tools to create shared laughter. Well, and you talk about tools, um, but one of the tools that companies really need is more creativity. And what's the most creative environment? When are people most creative? When they're at play. Absolutely. So, so I mean, even on that level, if you can get a sense of, of, of levity, of, of play into a, a, an atmosphere at work, guess what? I think most organizations have to be creative. In fact, I can't think, even if you're an accounts company, you have to be creative within that. How can we get more customers? Right. And how can we build on each other's ideas rather than shutting people down in an environment of play and openness and no wrong answers, which is all the exercises that we do, the games that we play, you know, they start with that yes and game, which I'm sure you've talked about and do talk about. Know it very well. Very important. But just actually, because, you know, we've had um, great improvisers on here, uh, but Let's just go over for, uh, for our listeners to, to the, what that's about, because we passed over it, but we shouldn't presume that everybody knows what yes and means. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so this is, we when we come in and do programming, this is the one, because we do a subscription, you can have 25 events with us. This is the one that's always repeated and repeated because it's very important to reinforce. And it comes straight from the improv world. It's this idea of yes and, it's exactly like it sounds, yes and. And it's, it's a way of communicating where you start your sentence literally with yes. Whatever comes at you, you start it with yes. Doesn't mean you agree in brainstorming or in team building or in anything. It doesn't necessarily mean I agree with you. It means yes, I've heard you and have you thought about this? Or, and I'd like more information rather than, yeah, but, ah, which immediately throws up a negative kind of like, yeah, I don't think, or yeah, maybe, which is like, so depressing, like maybe you're kind of dumb. So the yes and encourages people to keep the conversation going and to keep moving forward to a solution that you both agree on and can get excited about with each person adding that's the and aspect yes i'm hearing you and i'm thinking we do this yes and how about we do this yes and have you thought about this 
it moves it forward and it creates an environment where people look forward to contributing their what they have to say. I couldn't agree more. And we had the the great um, Neil Malarkey on here from the Comedy Store Players, who I used to guest with, and uh, who are in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest running show in the world. And uh, the whole premise, the yes and premise in right. business is really important to create that creativity because no but closes everything down and therefore nobody is being creative. So uh, uh, I couldn't agree more on that fact. So does humour, in your opinion, aid resilience? Does it, does it, does it help people get through life on a, a real and tangible level? Oh, I absolutely feel that humor is essential for resilience. It's a wonderful way of saying it's not always going to be like this. Let's laugh about it. It gives it literally gives you more oxygen and it literally releases endorphins and serotonin. So, yes, it's a key part of resilience. It's fortifying. It's like emotionally and mentally fortifying to have a good laugh get all that hormone jolt and keep going forward. So absolutely. Yeah, that hormone jolt, the, get those um, endorphins going. Danny, we've reached the part of the show uh, where we're going to do quick fire questions. Oh my goodness, okay. Quick fire questions. Who's the funniest business person you've met? Gosh, that's so easy. Jerry Zachs, uh, Broadway director. I was started out as his assistant when I was 20 in New York City. He has two shows opening, Music Man and uh, uh, Music Man. And what's the other one? Uh, anyway, two shows opening on Broadway. And he is very, 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 very funny guy. So, yeah, he's the funniest person I've ever met. And we're what, what, what is it about him? Well, he has great timing. He just has great timing. And He's self-deprecating, but not uh, to the point where you're worried about him. But he has humility. He's like a five-time Tony Award winner and still has a sense of humor about himself. Great sense of humor about himself. Great. I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting Jerry Zachs. Um, what book makes you laugh, Danny? Uh, the book that makes me laugh. I am reading a book right now called Lady Parts by Deborah Kopakin. And... Uh, it totally makes me laugh because she's so bold. And it's actually every chapter is about like a body part that stopped working for her. And she's completely bold about it, like with the uterus and the breast and the heart. And she's just very funny in her candor about the experience. And she also, the pacing of the book is so good that you're like, oh my gosh. And she was really tight with Nora Ephron. So there's really funny scenes in the book with Nora Ephron. I mean, where she writes about these, these meals with Nora Ephron. So that's, that's the most recent one that has really made me laugh out loud. Like, oh my God, you know, that, that laughter of recognition of like, oh gosh, oh. exactly. Well, I'd like to uh, say that your book, Take My Spouse Pleads, made me laugh because uh, I, I, it's just that that combination of, of, of can we use comedy to sort out our relationships? I, and I think, thought it's just such a great premise. But actually, is laughter the lifeblood of any relationship, you think, whether that's in comedy, in a spouse or in any other world? OK, well, my opinion 
you know, I feel like the opinions here are expressed only of those who've said them and not for the, that is my opinion. That's how I persevere. I've, I wrote that book at the 10 year mark of our marriage. And in a month, it'll be 20 years that we're married. And I absolutely believe that the, that what I learned researching that book and writing that book saved our marriage for me, because I, and for both of us, because we recognize what I learned, and this is an interesting thing about shared laughter, when you go to analyze it, you realize the laughter is actually a byproduct of all of these other components being in place of trust, of listening, of letting go of the moment before, paying attention to timing. Like that's the thing when you break it down, laughter is a result of all of that. So if you're doing your work in that respect, that the laughter will be the result of paying attention essentially and being authentic. So yeah, I really think all of my successful relationships, we have to be able to have a sense of humor together. So what film makes you laugh? It's really funny. And this is going to sound like narcissism, but I will tell you that the movie that makes me laugh out loud is the remake of the out of towners with John Cleese, because I was I played John Cleese's assistant. So it was me and Steve Martin and Goldie Hawn. That was my scene. And I just, it always makes me laugh because first of all, when I saw that, that was my scene. I was like, okay, well, I can die now. Like all my comedy legends are around me. That was genius. But also John Cleese was so, oh, so gifted. So it was real. I had to hand him a phone and like, as it's for you. And he was like, oh no, turn the phone around, it'll be funnier. And he was right. And so that's why I, uh, that just seemed just like that comedy lesson right there just makes me laugh. Plus he's just the funniest guy. He was a genius. He's still a genius, but I mean, that moment just totally made me laugh out loud. So, well, uh, well, um, four comedy geniuses. And I like the billing that you started. It was me, John Cleese, <laughs> Steve Martin and Goldie Horn. Yes, it was me. I was very big. Yes. Oh, another movie that makes me laugh out loud is The Doors with um, Oliver Stone's The Doors with Al Kilmer. Because again, I had a small part in that and I played uh, uh, a news journalist in Florida. And I didn't like that. It was a really long shoot day. And I did not like the woman next to me. Like she was, she didn't eat all day. And all she kept saying is, I'm so hungry. <laughs> and so I made this choice when I had my line to go like this. And for those of you listening, I rolled my very big eyes and on a 20 foot by 20 foot screen, I look ridiculous. I look like a type of bored bird. And that makes me laugh out loud when I see that too. Sorry, they're both about me, but uh, what can I say? Those are really funny moments. Okay, taking a shift to the other side, what's not funny? I think I mentioned earlier, anything where kids are in peril, I don't, I don't think that's funny. And I, re I realized recently, calves like baby cows someone i teach a memoir writing class to 85 year olds here and one of my people who's very smart wrote this whole story about having dinner with joan baez and he kept singing some song about the sad calves is there some song anyway at the end of the the, the punchline of the whole story was and then she served calves liver and onions <laughs> i was like ew like I don't think that's funny at all. Like the poor little calf, like, I don't think that's funny. And then it was like very tense because I don't, 
I don't think that it was funny. And he was like, I'm so clever, aren't I? And I was like, so I don't like, I don't like um, anything in peril. Obviously, I, I don't think incest is funny. I don't think rape is funny. I know Sarah Silverman's done, you know, wonderful things with rape. I, 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 I don't think it's funny. I think there are certain limits. So everybody's different, aren't they? And they have to know, but it's, a, it's very interesting to find where your limits are. What word makes you laugh? I can only think words that make me squeak, like moist. I don't like the word moist, but that's like, I think a lot of people have a moist issue. Words that make me laugh. I guess schmuck makes me laugh now because it has a personal, personal resonance for me. It'll always have a place in my heart. Didn't we, didn't I send you an email about like shebang, like the whole shebang? Yeah. And yeah, it's like the whole shebang and how you can't say that now. You'd have to say like they bang. And that has a totally different connotation. <laughs> That's funny. They bang it would be funny to me. That's very funny. Yeah, I like that. It's politically it conscious. Yeah, yeah, they bang. What sound makes you laugh, Danny? One of my comedians, we do a warm up and you have to do, she do like a ho, ho, ho. Everybody does ho, ho, ho. And then for some reason, she feels compelled to have everybody do a bird sound. And then she just completely commits and she's like, and it's, I'm like, only you would do that, Nikki. And, and you got to see all these people look at her like, I'm not doing that. Don't, don't make me do that. And she's, she's fully committed. Oh, I love that. That makes me laugh. So, uh, would you rather be considered clever or funny? Um, definitely funny. Clever is like a wordsmith, and it it feels very surface to me. I I think funny comes from your soul and it risks vulnerability and has courage. I don't think it takes a lot of courage to be clever. Clever is uh, and clever can be a little mean and cutting. I don't know. I associate it with things that I don't feel in my soul, in my spirit. I want to be funny. I want to make people like laugh from their heart and from acknowledgement of something, from feeling recognized, as opposed to just stringing words together and very oh, that's so clever how you did that. Beautiful answer. And finally, Danny, desert island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is it? I'm assuming that we're going to a tropical island and I'm going to say slipping on a banana peel. I'm going to bring it old school. I'm going to hope that my person that I'm sequestered with has a sense of humor. I'm going to eat the banana first so that I am fortified. And then I'm going to just leave it in a handy place and watch them go boom. But in the sand. See, I have so much heart. I can't have them slipping and then cracking their head open on a rock. Then I would have to take care of them. So banana peel in the sand, boom, going down. <laughs> it's yours on the desert island. Danny Klein Modisette, thank you so much for sharing all that wonderful knowledge with us on the Humorology Podcast. Thank you. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.